We are back for another Codex Cantina episode, which is just two guys talking literature, trying to make sense of it. Now, we spend a lot of time pushing ourselves, trying to understand this literature, organizing it, and then bringing it to a conversational approach for how we deliver it. And we've absolutely put more money in it than we've gotten out of it. So if you guys are considering supporting this channel, we'd appreciate you checking out our Patreon link at patreon.com slash the Codex Cantina, as well as Ko-Fi of ko-fi.com slash the Codex Cantina. It all helps us in running the show, along with commercials, guys. So thank you so much. We're going to do a quick commercial break, and then we'll get on with the rest of the episode. Now, I don't know if you knew this, but this story was actually written later in Akutagawa's career. It kind of moved from morals and personal and fables to this more psychological and well, I don't want to say dread because a lot of the stories had dread but more supernatural <laughs> it definitely seemed to have a lot of different avenues I'm really excited to discuss this one today because at times I'll be honest I felt a little bit lost and I felt like there were certain I was like oh okay I get that and oh there's some symbolism there and I was able to take away some of the the themes and some of the analytical aspects of this story but he's such a a complex writer and he's obviously a genius and much smarter than I am. Uh, so my elementary brain struggled to grasp some of the concepts. So let's get into it. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I mean, don't beat yourself up over literature, right? Like let it wash over you, enjoy what you can, right? For anyone out there that might have similar feelings is, is what I would say. And, you know, maybe some of that dread, that uneasiness is intentional, Right. Like your boy, Yukio Mishima, is quoted as saying that Kutagawa did a quote, modern scene of hell. Boku lives in a life more hellish than hell, end quote, with this story. So, you know, this story is designed to make you feel uneasy and, you know, just, just to jump straight into it. Right. Like we, we start off, you know, on we're in a taxi sharing it. We hear the story about the raincoat and I'm sitting here thinking of like it from Stephen King. And, um, you know, the electric lights are haunting us only to like suddenly get, you know, the, the hook, right? We see the spinning gears like that are translucent and clouding our vision. So maybe this, let's start anchoring this a little bit, because particularly the first parts, the, I think it's the strongest of all six even, but the, the first part here is frequently compared when well, the whole thing is kind of compared to the pit and the pendulum by Edgar Allan Poe, because you have these ideas of, of torture, of justice, of sin, of fear, of punishment, as well as modernization and, and saviorism. Uh, you've got all that going on in this story. And what is a spinning gear but fate pushing you forward with no control on a set track, right? And you're going to start to see those tones permeate throughout this whole piece. And I think Raincoat does a great job of setting the tone, setting the stage for this, because I, as somebody, and I know that you don't believe this, Una, but I do like a schedule and 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 to have that anxiety of being late or and this guy's just very casual about it right of the narrator's just like yeah i'm going to miss the train so i'll take the next one like <gasps> like my i don't know ocd to be on time just like i'm the guy that gets to the movies 30 minutes early to make sure i don't miss the 20 minute movie like that set me on this path of unease for the rest of the story and it it really did kind of uh, uh, get me going. And I guess that's a good thing because I felt like I was in hell part of this story. Right. Well, I mean, think about it. When he's at the, I think when it gets to the reception, he has the plate with the maggots on it. 
And he's like, well, it could be an earthworm, right? And then we go through that whole coat rack versus person and the Keelan versus unicorn. You have this duality of things and the maggots on his plate don't unsettle him, which unsettled me reading it because you think <laughs> yeah. that is just disgusting. But it goes back to, okay, we're going to start bringing in this concept of death, of this idea of duality even. It might even give you a little bit of Borgesian feel, you know, when things can have two existences across multiple universes, the way one culture calls it a Keelan and the other culture calls it a unicorn and the other country actually probably doesn't call it a Keelan. I don't know how it's pronounced, but that's how it's pronounced for this video. <laughs> <laughs> Do you feel that, again, this could be a little bit autobiographical and that Akutagawa knew his own fate and he's kind of accepting of it because I feel like the narrator is accepting of it, of being just like, yep, there's some maggots. I'm cool with that because most people wouldn't accept that. Well, we haven't mentioned this, that this was, I don't know if it is the, it's very close, if not the, but I think it might be the last story he penned before he ended himself. Yeah. Which is why the ending paragraph is so haunting, which is why I think you see so many echoes of Akutagawa through Dazai's writing and such. And the way that, you know, here at the ending of Raincoats, you hear him hear Oraitu and uh and Oraito and and you hear you see him starting to write all right in Japanese. And you learn about how these electric lights were oppressing him at the reception as he was walking around at the train station. And then again, he's like kind of trying to avoid these electric lights in the lobby. There's like a green lampshade that he feels he needs to avoid as these colors tend to keep reappearing the green, the yellow, and the black and white throughout the story. But it all leads towards death, right? He finds out that his brother-in-law has been hit by this train and he was wearing a raincoat. And it's got, um. remember when we did The Signal Man by Charles Dickens? Oh, it's yeah. That, it's that, could you read the signs of the universe? Is the universe a spinning cogwheel of fate where it doesn't matter what you do? There is no free will. We're all heading towards this particular one. And does this narrator know that his is death? I think he does know. I think that's why he's accepting of it and he's fine with it. And I threw a little green in the background there because I knew you were going to bring up the colors. They're just too prominent. Uh, I, I did have a little bit of difficulty dissecting those, but I, I feel like that that prominence of the electric, you know, life, you know, because life is electric and those electric impulses in our body and what happens in death is all of that ends. Mm -hmm. Well, and I believe you can't quote me on this. You shouldn't quote me on anything, but I believe it was his wife that had written that he started to believe later in life that his life was no longer under his control. Like he started to think that there were greater forces pushing him forward. And you see the way that he, he almost struggles with the supernatural force, particularly in the second part, right? With the rat that was carrying the slipper and then suddenly the rat's not there. And you're like, okay, you know, that's the, the age old question. How do I detect an undetectable invisible force? You know what I mean? If, if there truly is a supernatural thing pushing life down a certain path, uh, he's got kind of like a little bit of the La Orla, Maupassant uh, feeling. And, and I know I'm referencing, you know, Poe and Maupassant and, and, and a lot of different things with Dickens. But, you know, even in this part, like the fifth part of the story, too, there's a ton of literary references. Right. Like like he really pushes the reader and is not very um, forgiving. Like he just throws references out left and right to other literature. 
And the second part of Vengeance was one that I felt like I honed in on the most because it's one of those as an individual, when you start to question your own sanity and you might think to yourself, I am sane, what is going on? One of, I think, for many people, a logical jump or conclusion is this has to be supernatural. There's nothing wrong with me. There has to be something else out there Mm. beyond just the norm, the mundane. And it can easily allow you, I think, to convince yourself of that because you're just searching for answers. You just need something to rationalize. You just need something to anchor yourself down because you know in your own mind that you aren't broken. And maybe it's hard to accept when you are broken. Oh, 100%. No, you're, I think you're absolutely on the right path because I don't know if we've ever talked about it, but there are studies out there that says humans are predisposed to believe more likely in a supernatural solution, right? Because I think of maybe some of those psychological draws of externalizing some problems, right? Because you saw in the story, he even, he was so worried about sin, and these people, when he's walking around Ginza, which I, th- I think it was Ginza, it's a very rich part of town. It's very expensive shopping over there, uh, indulgence, right? And he's wondering about, are these people aware of sin? And they bring in some references at the end of part two of Vengeance with the Hades and with the Furies chasing him. And we've talked about Furies and some other talks of ours too, which were the Greek, eh, I don't know. I can't remember exactly what they were, but they they came after you if you did something wrong, like a way of punishment. Greek literature. If you, <laughs> yeah, it's in, it in the Greek stuff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, it, uh, you know, we culminate in the night where, you know, just like Akutagawa in real life had problems sleeping. He, he got addicted to sleeping pills. That's actually, I think that might be what did him in in the end was an OD on that. Uh, but you see how he even talks about when he's ride, talking to his writer friend that he's just like, yeah, I'm getting along with medicine, right? And he's having a hard time sleeping and he's trying to finish his stories. The the Another reason why the story is so famous is the main character is like this thinly veiled replica. Like if we're talking about the Borgesian multiple experiences, right? He talks about how he wrote the short story Hellscream, which we've covered on this channel and some of the poem collections that he wrote, Akutagawa himself. And in the English translation, it's Mr. A. I think it was Boku, maybe in the Japanese, which just means like I. But it's a thinly veiled approach of, yeah, this is kind of some type of a fuzzy mirror rendition of Akutagawa himself as the main character. I got the impression that it very much felt like death itself. It 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 had this feel of gauntness. And I think that, you know, as you're struggling with life and you're struggling with acceptance and maybe having some, you know, uh, mental breakdowns, and then you're not sleeping on top of it. And if you're taking, you know, some type of medication to sleep, I don't think you're probably getting good sleep. Again, I'm not a doctor or anything, but, you know, having to have an artificial sleep is probably not going to be good as natural sleep. And that in itself is going to start affecting you mentally. And you're not going to be able to function, you know, cognitively as well. And and then again, that, that gear that's spinning is not going to line up correctly and your life is just going to be off the rest of, uh, you know, every aspect of the rest of your life is going to be off. Oh, a hundred percent, you know, and and the author himself, he would, I can't remember if it was before or during when he was taking a lot of the drugs, but there's, there's talk where he would stay up two days in a row because he couldn't sleep and he just zonk out for a day and then repeat that process, right? Like it was a very strange sleeping behavior. I don't think it is. 
yeah, and I'm not a doctor either, but I, I know that that's not a good way to live. And he started to have actual hallucinations and such. So exactly how much of this is literature and how much of this is him reflecting some form of what he's experiencing with the sleeping. He lost his brother-in-law, just like the character did in the story. His mom was also in a psychiatric ward. I think, I think since he was like a real young boy, I think like two years old or something like that. Like it's something he was always worried about his mental deterioration. And now he's like, I think it's happening. I'm going to end up like my mother. And rather than live like this, to, to all this talk that we've had, I feel death is coming for me. I feel there's warning signs about fate that this is happening. And that's why you see like the yellow taxis, the book of yellow from Strindberg that he tries to avoid or the green lamp that, that he's trying to avoid or this green book on religion in the room that these colors are all warnings for him that lead to this black and white, right? Like in terms of that gnarled black tree and we see black and white through it, the funeral colors, we're all heading towards death like a fate wheel. And he sees, and he's reading the signs is, is that he's like, this is, this is what's going to happen to me. And that's, what's haunting. Yeah. And I think that it's terrifying. He is powerless and he, this could even be one of the greatest glimpses into the human subconscious because it, it is theoretical. Again, I'm totally throwing this out there. Crazy idea. What if some of this story is him sleep writing? Like he's gone through sleep deprivation for two days and then sits down and is writing this or zonks out for a day and wakes up in this kind of delirium. You know how like if you sleep too much, you're you're super groggy and he's getting up and writing this. I mean, this is so close to home. It just feels so real to me. And mm-hmm. it, it's, it's heartbreaking in the end, too. Well, you kind of get a little bit of that dreamy nightmarish at uh, like atmosphere in the part five the red lights right because you have the red light filling the room we finally do have a somewhat of a dream and he like he's just like gonna wake up and just i'm just gonna go see this pious old man who offers me an apple right and on that apple we have the unicorn the, the horned creature right so so again you know in terms of his christian uh myths i'm not as good at picking out a lot of the the, the more Buddhism and such, but y- you see the way he infuses uh, the way that that death is coming for him, that that sin is coming for him, right? If we think of the apple and the fall from the Garden of Eden and, and the, the serpent being the representation of Satan, right? Like the horns from the, 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 the unicorn here. We have a lot of like almost, it's like meeting the devil because in his mind, which is, you know, out there, he thought he borrowed crime and punishment. And you and I have read the Brothers Karamazov, of course. And there's reference to Ivan. If you remember, there's that very famous chapter in Brothers Karamazov where Ivan meets the devil and you're not sure if it's reality or not, right? Yeah. And that's what this man's going through is he's like, I'm losing my mind and I don't know what's real or not anymore. And what does reality see him as? Like if we view his wife as someone that should stabilize him or society, like in the sixth part, she's like, like I had this vision that you were dead, right? Like even she is starting to almost see the signs, which makes it even freakier considering this is like right before the end for the author himself. It is very eerie. And I think a lot of the clues, and again, I didn't pick up on them well, in, but I did see them. And I, I think that if you looked really deep and you plotted it out through the whole story and all the parts, I think the colors are what it comes down to. And that those were the signs of his mental deterioration. And those were the signs, 
Those were the cries for help. And I, I, I think that those had meaning to it. And I don't know if green is for life, vibrant grass, green nature, and blood. We is red. We have blood. Uh, and those were kind of playing off of each other of life and death here throughout the story. And I also thought, as we get to the end, has he been dead all along? Has he been ghosting through this story and it's a remembrance of his life? Um, Because that is one way that you could think of, you know, when you you get to the end of your life. And, of course, nobody really truly knows, but there is the, the idea that your whole life flashes before your eyes. Is this his whole life and he has been dead the whole time. Uh, I, I, I don't know. Uh, it, it just, it's, it's very eerie. It's very supernatural. It's very sad, especially when we get to the end here. Yeah. Like a, like a memory recall episode. Um, you know, everybody's going to read it, come with their own conclusions for me. You know, when I look at the colors, the yellows were warning in terms of the taxi and like that yellow book, which, uh, I think when, what was it? He read, I think it was Inferno by that, by Estenberg. And when he did, I think his, again, don't call me. I think his wife said that that's when he started to believe in the supernatural, right? It was at that moment that he knew that the writer himself had a turn in his life. And like the green, like he's avoiding the green lights. Like it gives him a headache. The green army American lady, like he was arguing, uh, he said he looked out to the the forest. He didn't call the forest green, but I know what color forest is. And he said that's where right. his stories went to die, right? So, so in some ways, we haven't I haven't had you read Kappa yet, which is his magnum opus, okay? And that's one of those stories where, what are monsters? And sometimes we realize we realize monsters are life, and life is suffering in some regards. Mm. And for some people, like Akutagawa it's much worse than perhaps someone who me, I I feel like I have a pretty good life. I'm generally pretty satisfied, but maybe that's my lower intellect that I get satisfied a lot easier. I don't know. Oh man, you're you're speaking to my pessimism so much. You're hitting me in the heart. I love it. I love it. Uh, I think at the end though, there, the last part, uh, it really hit home when um, they basically just say he's an idiot. He has schizophrenia. I mean, it's called out right there blatant. And you're just like, Oh, like, why didn't you help the guy then? And again, I know mental health anguish and mental health issues was a lot different, you know, 90 years ago than it is today. And uh, in some regards, I mean, I think there's a lot more help nowadays, but in many regards, it's kind of the same of some people are just looked at as hopeless and throw medication at them and hope for the best and uh, let them, you know, ruin their own lives um, as long as it doesn't affect me. And it just comes back to be very heartbreaking. But I I think this is a fantastic story. And I I think that it just, it feels so real to me. And I think that's what a lot of people feel is when, when they read this, they react to it. And perhaps that's way better than any form of symbolism that we could talk about or give guidance to. We just, this is how we interpret and enjoy literature, right? And this is one of those stories that I think doesn't have to go down a particular cogwheels path of it must be interpreted this way. You can react to it. And these are just the ways that have pulled, I think, our strings that I think this is a powerful story. And I can see clearly why it's one of Akutagawa's most you know, famous recommended stories. But that's because we got to get you some kappa in your brain coming up soon. <laughs> All right. Sign me up. 
<laughs> All right, guys. My name's Venuna. Hope you enjoyed the conversation. What did you think about this piece? What were some of your favorite or most haunting moments in it? Let us know in the comments down below. Peace. Peace. <laughs>